Hi, this is Dominic Preziosi. Nearly a year into the COVID pandemic, and some weeks after the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol, I received a copy of a short collection of writings by the American rabbi and civil rights leader Abraham Heschel, titled Thunder in the Soul, To Be Known by God, released as part of the Plow series of spiritual writings. Presented as an introduction to Heschel's insights on the nature of God's relationships with human beings, the meaning of justice, the prophetic tradition of hope, and other topics, it came along at the right moment, a small book that nonetheless brought me considerable solace in trying times. Its publication also coincided with a new documentary on Heschel that recently premiered on PBS. We're fortunate to have two guests today to talk about Heschel. His daughter, Susanna Heschel, who wrote the foreword to Thunder in the Soul, and Martin Dobelmeyer, director of the film Spiritual Audacity, the Abraham Joshua Heschel story. Those interviews are coming up on the Commonweal Podcast. Martin Dobelmeyer is an American documentary filmmaker known for directing films for public television, including Bonhoeffer in 2003, The Power of Forgiveness in 2007, An American Conscience, The Reinhold Niebuhr Story in 2017, and Backs Against the Wall, The Howard Thurman Story in 2019. His most recent film is Spiritual Audacity, The Abraham Joshua Heschel Story, which premiered on PBS in May and is available to stream. I recently spoke with Martin about the project and what drew him to making a film about Heschel. Hi, Martin. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So, Martin, what drew you to Abraham Heschel, and why do you think uh, Americans still need to hear about him? Well, I think that Abraham Heschel really is one of the most remarkable figures of the 20th century, and not only a remarkable Jewish figure as a rabbi, uh, but I think really one of the most remarkable American figures of the 20th century. He's widely known because of his involvement in the civil rights movement. He and Martin Luther King Jr. became not only friends, but brothers, and he brought such an important impact of his own Jewish background to the civil rights movement, which was critical at the time. He was also an important player in the Second Vatican Council, and he was one of the people really responsible to help shape a document we know as Nostra Aetate, in our time, the document that opens the Catholic Church to other faith traditions. And thirdly, I think he's really remembered as one of the early and most outspoken critics of the Vietnam War. All three things he did at great risk to himself, his professional reputation, but he was willing to take those risks because fundamentally he believed those were important things to say and that God was calling him to be a prophetic voice at that moment. And the, the film you position Heschel not just as an important Jewish figure, but an important American figure. And you centered the documentary on his involvement in the civil rights movement. And I'm guessing there was a particular reason for this choice. For instance, his work in this area certainly seems illustrative of uh, combating what he called the evil of indifference, a notion that might have taken root via his response to the Holocaust, but I guess had applicability to the struggle for civil rights. Well, I, I think the first thing that I have to confess is that I, I am making a, a film for a broadcast nationwide television audience. And so I hear the words of public television officers saying to me, who are these people for most of America today? And so with each film, I have to make sure that I can create a starting place that the average American viewer can connect to. And for me, I thought the friendship between Abraham Heschel and Martin Luther King and the role that King, that, that King invited Heschel to play in the civil rights movement was the starting place. And that's where I launched the film from. And I felt as though that was the way 
that we could get most of Main Street America on board with the storyline about this Jewish scholar, writer, person in the high tower in Jewish theological seminary who may not be able on surface to connect with everything that was happening in America today. But once they saw the connection between Heschel and Martin Luther King Jr., something hopefully would click. And I think the real important line in that chapter of the story comes from the great uh, civil rights activist and former congressman, now deceased, John Lewis, who said that not only were Martin Luther King Jr. and Heschel friends, they became brothers. And as we're looking for ways that we can be hopeful about the racial unrest that's happening in America, what better example than to look at the example of Heschel and Martin Luther King. We as Americans love persons, human beings. We connect to human beings. And the imagery of seeing Heschel looking like an Old Testament prophet and seeing King on the front line representing the traditions of his Southern Baptist heritage, to see these two men who come from different religious backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds, with different skin color, who find a way not only to be able to address the issue together, but become brothers out of it, I think offers one of the most hopeful signs we can imagine about how we might be able to get ourselves out of the religious divide, the, the racial divide that we've created in this country today. I want to ask you another question. You know, in the film, in fact, picks up and, and talks about Heschel's involvement in helping the Second Vatican Council formulate new doctrine on Catholicism's relationship with Judaism, which led ultimately to the landmark document Nostra Aetate. And in the film, you show Heschel arriving in Rome and initially having a good rapport with uh, Cardinal Augustin Bay of Germany, who was a biblical scholar whom John the Twenty Third assigned to this work. And things you say in the film, didn't really get off to the greatest start. Could you talk about Heschel's initial reaction to some of the language and ideas first proposed by the council and how he helped move it from its millennia-old position on Judaism, from what John himself called the church's contemptuous teaching on Jews? Well, I'm old enough to, to remember teaching uh, in my Catholic upbringing that the Catholic church was the one path to salvation. And I think in, in some ways, we now look back at this seminal moment in religious history that we know as the Second Vatican Council, and clearly one of the most important and contentious documents that came out of that, that incredibly important movement called the Second Vatican Council was Nostra Aetate, in our time, an opportunity for the Catholic Church to go back and revisit its relationship with other faith traditions, and to do that now as it was entering in, thinking in terms of entering into a modern world. And Heschel was part of the committee, the American Jewish Committee, AJC, that was invited to help bring some wisdom and understanding and counsel to the Second Vatican Council's discussions about all this. And it was a process. Ultimately, how does the Catholic Church reconcile 2,000 years of its history and the words of Jesus before he leaves earth saying, now take what you have seen and heard and go forth and evangelize and to bring this word across the country. Well, where's the purpose now for the Catholic Church if it's not to go ahead and do that? That's what it's held on to for 2,000 years. And ultimately what happened was that there was a relationship that was built, a, a relationship again, just like with King and Heschel, a relationship in this case between August Bayer, a German cardinal who was entrusted by the, by the Second Vatican Council to come up with a document that would represent the thinking going forward, and Heschel, who's decided now that, these, that we can really actually work this out. The problem was that the Catholic Church, over the course of a couple of years in trying to create that document really had a long way to go in the reversal of, in the change of course in its thinking. 
And one of the things that it held on to, the church did, in the earlier drafts of the document was the fundamental notion that it was important to, we can love Jews, but ultimately our role as Catholics is to evangelize and to bring Jews into the Catholic church. And Heschel wouldn't have it. He basically said that if I, I, rather than give up my own faith, I'd rather go to Auschwitz. One of the most remembered lines Heschel ever delivers, and a line that was so hyperbolic and, and incendiary to so many people to say, now I get how important this means to you, that it infused within the governing body, the bishops at the Second Vatican Council, the notion that we are willing now to abandon language that says we will evangelize to and ultimately hope to convert Jews to the Catholic faith. And once that was given up as a notion, it seemed as though everything else went a little more smoothly. And the final document, I think, Nostra Aetate, really was one of the most transformative moments in religious history and has just resulted in so many different movements now across the globe that bring not only Catholics, but Christians and Jews and other faith traditions together. I think it's one of the most important moments in religious history. You actually started talking a little bit about this at the outset of our conversation, but you've remarked on it elsewhere in other conversations about you're anticipating a, not necessarily a negative response to this project from potential audiences, but just a somewhat distrustful or maybe not knowing what to make of a project like this, since contemporary culture doesn't seem to make the space for religion, neither for its observance or for its participation, nor for discussion of religious issues in the public square in the way it once did. So what's it like? working in this subject area in such a cultural and social moment. How do you think a project like this can connect with audiences, whether religious or not? Uh, do you think we'll ever see a time when religion will feature an informed popular discourse to the degree it did in Heschel's time here in the United States? Well, I think creating films and bringing them to Main Street America through television is a different task than it was when I began this work back in the 90s. Back in the 1980s, it was understood that religion, faith, was part of the American culture. There were moments that were carved out for the expressions of religion in the television weekly schedule. It was just understood that we would look to religion people as leaders and voices for commentary on what's happening in the bigger, so, with the bigger social and political issues of the day. So much of that has changed over these last two generations now. And I think I always enter into making a television program for wider distribution, knowing that a lot of people who are watching the television show would come to it with their own baggage about an understanding of religion. More and more people have felt disappointed by the faith tradition they may have grown up with. They're shifting faiths like never before. They, in some cases, they have felt betrayed by people they thought of as religious leaders and important voices, maybe in their own lives or in the, on the main stage. And so I have to think about that as I make each one of these films. And, and I think the best way that I can approach this is to pick subjects that can speak across a wide swath of the American public because of the human dimension of who they are, the, the fundamentally great story that they are, that I have the opportunity, the privilege to, to create. I think of each one of these films as um, narrative theology. I get the, the opportunity of uh, telling a story and unpacking theological ideas through the lives of people. And Heschel is one of the greatest examples of that for me. You don't need to be Jewish to watch the story on, on Abraham Heschel and find something of value and merit to it. And that's the common denominator that I'm, I'm looking for. And in answer to the last part of the question, which is whether or not I think there's going to be a time when people again start to look 
to religious figures for guidance and moral authority in our culture. I think that's going to happen only when religious figures emerge that really do offer a wise, universal, and moral voice to the issues, the social and political issues that are happening today. I see it happening. I think currently the mass media remains a little tone deaf to it, sadly. But I think as long as people remain true to their virtue and what they believe they have to do in the name of how they speak to their God and engage their God and do it faithfully, I think that trend is going to simply begin to ebb a little bit and people will want once again, feel more comfortable about turning to religious and moral voices for some direction in the terrible social and political issues we face today. Martin Dobelmeyer, thanks for being with us today. Dominic, thanks. I enjoyed it very much. Young people are the church, yet the church is facing significant challenges in reaching young adults and discerning and meeting their needs. The COVID-19 pandemic has only exacerbated decades-long trends in this relationship. Sacred Heart University in Fairfield, Connecticut, is proud to host the first Young Adults in the 21st Century Conference, which takes place on September 9th through the 11th. The gathering will bring a multi-generational approach and prayerful spirit to asking questions about and with young adults on a 21st century journey of faith. This year's conference will be virtual. For more information and to register, please visit www.sacredheart.du slash youngadults. Susanna Heschel is the Eli M. Black Distinguished Professor of Jewish Studies at Dartmouth College and the daughter of Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. She's written extensively on the history of Jewish and Protestant biblical scholarship, Muslim-Jewish relations, and the history of anti-Semitism. She spoke recently with Commonweal Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek about her father's spiritual and theological legacy. Susanna Heschel, thanks so much for joining us on the Commonweal Podcast. Pleasure to be with you, Griffin. Your father wrote many books, but the title that found the widest readership is The Sabbath. First published in 1951, it's a work of theology and biblical scholarship, but also a poetic exhortation to faith in the modern world. What kinds of readers was your father trying to reach? And also, who do you think might be drawn to the book today? So I think the book is popular around the world to all kinds of people, regardless of their religious faith because it's about human beings, about what it is to be a person. Because my father writes about life as time. That is, life is composed of time. He said once, to kill time is to commit murder. So that's what we have in our lives. We're given time, and it's a very short period of time. And the question is, what do we make of that time, and what do we do with our lives? And so for my father, it was important for us to pause once a week and to put aside things of space, things that he associated with technology, with work, and instead focus on time, that is, on our lives. And the central question of the Sabbath is, of course, how to make it holy. Because it says in the Ten Commandments, and I think it's interesting, that not that the Sabbath is holy, but that we make the Sabbath holy. We are capable of making time holy. And the question that is our challenge is how do we do that? How do we develop in ourselves the capacity to take a period of time 
and transform it into holy time, to sanctify time. It's not easy, and we're given commandments, suggestions, essentially, ways in which we can enhance our ability to make the Sabbath holy. And in my home, one of the things has to do with anticipation. Friday's anticipation of the coming of the Sabbath with sundown made the whole day very different. It was a weekday, but it was very different from all the other weekdays because of the anticipation, because of the excitement of getting ready for the Sabbath, the preparation. And in fact, my father has a short essay on Yom Kippur that I included in the collection that I published, Moral Grandeur and Spiritual Audacity. And in that essay on Yom Kippur, he says that preparing for Yom Kippur was in some ways even more important than the day itself. So I think sometimes people lose sight of what it means to prepare for a great occasion. And that's what he's trying to bring back. I want to read a quote to you from an early chapter of the Sabbath in which your father writes about what he thinks is the, mo the, the most pressing challenge of modernity. He writes, the solution to mankind's most vexing problem will not be found in renouncing technical civilization, but in attaining some degree of independence from it. What did he mean by technical civilization? And what is this kind of inner freedom that, that he was trying to expatiate on? So my father felt that very often, for example, we are told that we have needs that we don't have. We're told that we need to have a color television, or we need to have a bigger car or a new car every year. We don't need it. These are artificial. And this comes from advertising that tells us we have this need, but we don't. What really are our needs? What do we need to have a meaningful life? Television isn't going to do it material objects. So we have to free ourselves from the feeling that those are necessities of life that are going to improve our lives, and they're not. So free ourselves also of technology would mean, for instance, on the Sabbath or on a Jewish holiday, you prepare in advance, get all the cooking done before you light the candles on Friday, and then enjoy the Sabbath, relax, take pleasure, celebrate, be with your family, be present. Don't be in the kitchen cooking the meal. So that kind of freedom from those constraints, freedom from television or from running around, from flying off to another conference, that's the freedom of the Sabbath. Do, do you think there's a connection between your father's Hasidism, which is the atmosphere he grew up with, and that, that notion of material poverty that he had actually experienced as part of his life? So I would say, first of all, my father was nine when his father died. And so my father grew up very poor. In addition, my grandfather had decided to become a rabbi in the most impoverished Jewish neighborhood of Warsaw. As a result, my father and his older brother, who became a rabbi in England, were both very concerned about poverty. I remember when my uncle came to the United States and I was, uh, I think, nine years, seven years old, and we were walking together along Broadway. And my uncle was horrified that there were people begging on the streets of America, the wealthiest country in the world. He was horrified. And so was my father. So what their poverty experience meant to them was that there shouldn't be poverty in the world. 
and that they had to do something about it. My father worked, for example, with Jesse Jackson in Operation Breadbasket. The idea that there would be people going to bed hungry in this country, as there are children, adults, not enough food to eat in this country is the most appalling thing you could imagine. My parents lived modestly. My father did not earn a big salary and he came without anything to this country, but they knew how to celebrate. So when it was a special occasion, for instance, I remember they would, they would buy a bottle of beer and share it. And along with some special crackers that they liked, there were cheese crackers. And, and that was a celebration. Just each drinking half a bottle of beer and eating these crackers. Was, and they imbued it. You don't need to have extravagance to have joy. You've written that your father's approach to Christians was unique and distinctive among modern Jewish theologians. And I'm wondering if you could help our listeners understand that. Modern Jewish thinkers were very concerned about the figure of Jesus and his Jewishness. And they tried by emphasizing Jesus's Jewishness and the parallels between Jesus's teachings and those of the rabbis of his day. They tried to build a bridge with Christians, but it didn't work out that way because it raised anxieties among Christian theologians in the 19th century in Germany about the distinctiveness between Judaism and Christianity. Where is the line of division? And what's unique then about Jesus if he's simply another rabbi? So my father did not talk about the figure of Jesus and, and his Jewishness. He didn't reject it or disagree or something like that. He just thought that was not the concern. And he said, no matter what I say as a Jew about Jesus, it will never satisfy a Christian, obviously. It will never affirm Jesus as a Messiah. So Instead, he said, what we should do is think on a different level, which is the level of religiosity, the level of faith. What does it mean when we each sometimes have trouble praying, when we despair, when we face horrors in our world or in our own lives? How do we keep our faith, maintain ourselves, feel the presence of God? Are there ways in which we can sustain one another? And so he wrote in his essay, No Religion is an Island, that in fact, during the course of history, when Jews lived among pious Christians, Jews were pious. So we have a responsibility, in other words, not only to our own faith communities, but to the faith communities of other religious traditions. What I say about Judaism will affect what Christians feel not only about Judaism, but about their own faith, their own religion. And that, I think, is a very interesting way to think about religious dialogue. A prime example is the medieval interest in, among Kabbalistic circles, in the imminent presence of God, the Shekhinah, feminine aspect of God, that's described in language with images very similar to those of Catholics in northern Spain in the 13th century. I'm talking about 13th century. Catholic devotion to Mary and the way Jews think about the Shekhinah. I mean, we affect each other. That's clear. It's a historical reality. And for my father, it's an imperative of religious dialogue to consider how we affect each other. Your father also had a very a particular understanding of religion. He wrote that it wasn't supposed to be, or sorry, you wrote, describing his view of religion, that it's not comfort for the afflicted, but affliction for the comfortable. Religion begins with wonder, mystery, and all, but it also makes practical and even political demands of us. 
How did your father understand that? For my father, our private piety can't, cannot be disconnected from our social engagement, whether it's with family, community, or the larger world around us. And so he said, to pray and be silent on Vietnam is heresy. It's impossible. It would be blasphemy, he said. It's blasphemy. How can you pray to God who has created human beings who are being bombed from the skies with napalm dropping on them? It's not possible. What do you think? If someone needs a, an analogy, would you say, can you uh, talk to me and say, uh, yeah, that you're my best friend and then say something terrible about my children? Of course not. Any human being knows that. So there's an obligation that comes with believing in God. If I say I believe in God, what are you doing about it? What do you think God wants from you? And for my father, we always turn things upside down. It's not, do I believe in God? For him, the question is, why should God continue to have faith in us, given the way we behave, how we treat one another? That's the issue. So many of the issues that concern my father while he was alive are still with us to this day. It's not as if there are suddenly new issues. Poverty is one. Hunger, racism, the violence committed by our government in our name, in this country and elsewhere. Cruelty, human cruelty. The indifference to people's suffering. Never to be indifferent to other people's suffering. That was my father's message. I think he felt that too often we're denying our own humanity, what we are capable of as human beings, what we're capable of becoming. And he said, some are guilty, but all are responsible. We're all responsible. Well, we shy away from responsibility. We don't want to see it, but we want to blame someone else. It's not our fault. It's their fault, or they started it. It doesn't matter. That's over and over again, our unwillingness to accept responsibility. I think often it's also a fear of a vulnerability, of recognizing when we see injustice toward others, that it is in fact an injustice to us as well. My father was a person who had a tremendous ability to feel for other human beings. He was sleepless over Vietnam. He was so upset. And he also was completely sympathetic and empathic and loving and attentive to me when I came to him with some of my problems with friends at school or homework or who knows what, whatever small thing. I hated having to wear glasses. And he was so warm and understanding and kind. And he never said to me, oh, well, you know, no. He always felt with me. He felt so sorry. He f and I knew it. I could feel that he felt with me and that he cared. So he, his ability to feel was on the simplest level with his own little girl and on the bigger level with Vietnam. What do you think he might say about the connection between vulnerability and courage? The root of my father's teachings about religiosity the root of it is classical Hasidic teaching. And so in classical Hasidic teaching, everything you do can be a moment of 
feeling the presence of God in the most mundane thing. It doesn't matter. The question is, do I infuse this act with piety, with religiosity, with a sense of refinement? How do I behave? How do I treat another person when I'm buying something in the grocery store? And the other person's in a bad mood. And I used to see my father somehow turn that person's bad mood into a smile. He cared about that. He cared about the small interactions with people. He was always gracious and kind. So in Hasidic understanding, my father talks about it as a mitzvah, doing a mitzvah is a prayer in the form of a deed. So when I do something, can I make it a kind of prayer as an action? And so my father came back from Selma and he said, I felt my legs were praying. He said, I felt something holy in that march. I felt reminded of what it was like to walk with Hasidic Rebbe's in Europe. That was extraordinary. So the ability to turn a moment like a march for civil rights into a prayer, into a holy moment, what does it take to do that? And I think the vulnerability is there because it means opening my heart, being very present in the moment, not just saying this is on a checklist, <laughs> obviously, but also feeling with others. My father felt with Dr. King the presence of a great spirit, of a kindred spirit. Didn't matter that they came from totally different backgrounds. It didn't matter. He felt holiness in that march. Now, how do you feel holiness? What does it take to experience the holy? And so my father writes about that in his books, and Man is Not Alone and God in Search of Man, to cultivate aspects of our own humanity, the ability to experience wonder and awe and glory. How do we experience radical amazement? What does it take? How often does that happen in our daily lives? What can I do so that my daily lives can also have a sense of wonder and awe? Susanna Heschel, thank you so much for speaking with us today. It's been such a pleasure. It was great to be with you. Martin Dolbemeyer's new film, Spiritual Audacity, The Abraham Joshua Heschel Story, is available now on PBS streaming and DVD. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. <laughs>